You're listening to a sermon from Lakeview Baptist Church. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at 6 o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Good morning. If, you don't, if you're a visitor with us uh, for the first time this morning, I am not Pastor Brian. I'm Kevin Webb. I'm the college pastor here. By the way, I don't ever get to sit out here and listen to the choir. Man. I say all that to say, some of you need to join the choir. I'm really looking at this side of the room. What are you guys doing? That, by the way, it looks full. They can put more chairs there. And... uh John Dale, that didn't need to be said. Come on now. Um, And it's a lot of fun, guys. But anyway, if you have your Bible, find the New Testament book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1. I am really grateful to have the opportunity to bring God's Word to you. This morning, I'm always, and this morning is no exception, incredibly humbled to have the opportunity to, to preach here. Um, January is always, I feel, at least in my perception, January is always a month in the life of our church uh, of sort of just getting back and reestablishing some of the fundamentals of our our faith and of our walk with Christ. I mean, that's that's always fitting as we enter a new calendar year. It is in your own personal life. It is corporately as a church. Um, this, we've entered a new calendar year, one, and we just sang about it in one of our songs, one in which the Holy Spirit through Moses tells us to learn how to number your days, that you might gain a heart of wisdom. And one of the ways you do that is just coming back to the most important things at the start of a new year. And uh, the way that's shown up in the life of our church, the most obvious way recently, is that we're just coming off a week of prayer. Um, prayer is one of those fundamentals of walking with Jesus Christ. And we have this renewed emphasis on prayer. Pastor Brian's been preaching on prayer this month. He's going to come back to his series in John a little later on. And uh, we just wrapped up this, this whole week where we gathered in here at 6 o'clock uh, every evening this week to pray. At the end of it, we took the Lord's Supper. Uh, that was good. Um, and we were reminded that, that through that, just these simple truths that like as important as individual prayer is in your, in your walk with Christ, uh, there, there is something about, and Scripture teaches us this, something about corporate prayer. When we, when we gather together and, and pray, in, in some ways, is even more vital than your individual prayer. I mean, if you think about the number of times corporate prayer is mentioned in the New Testament, Anyway, I, I, I had this thought in my mind when I was thinking about what to preach this morning, and I'm thinking about New Year, and I'm thinking about coming back to just fundamentals of, of our faith and the most important things. Um, I, I, I was kind of, I was um, drawn to this uh, great passage here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I was drawn to it because it just happened to be, a, just happened to be, I think in the providence of God, that I read this passage during my Bible reading plan in, a, in one of my recent quiet times. It's a passage that is so familiar to us that I, 
I think that uh, at least some of us could recite some of it from memory. I know that's, that's true for me. Um, and, but this, but I, I found that when I read it that morning, but despite my familiarity with it, um, I don't know, I was just struck again that morning with the beauty of what it says. Sometimes when you, you read passages in your Bible reading plan and you've read it a thousand times, you can just wash right through it. But sometimes the Holy Spirit just slows you down and you just, you just marvel again at, the, at the, the, the beauty of it and the beauty of what it says. And what I'm talking about in 1 Timothy 1 is this first of what would be five trustworthy sayings. Um, five trustworthy sayings that Paul gives in and through these pastoral epistles, what we call. That would be First and Second Timothy and Titus. He gives five of these statements that he introduces. This is a trustworthy saying. Um, and we find the first one here in 1 Timothy 1.15. We're going to focus on verses 15 through 17. We'll read it uh, in, in its entirety in just a moment. But Paul, notice that Paul begins that passage saying, this is a trustworthy saying. And deserving of full acceptance, or the saying is trustworthy. And, and, and as we find it in this, the way I thought about it, the way we find it in this, this is in a pastoral epistle. This is, in other words, this is the Holy Spirit through Paul telling Timothy, Pastor Timothy, who was the pastor at the church in Ephesus, this is what you need to preach and preach regularly, right? I felt like, well, we're on good ground uh, to call it again to our minds this morning. Um, so here it is. Here we are. 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 through 17. Let's read it, and then we'll dive in. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, what what we just read and every other scripture that we will turn our attention to this morning. We confess our faith together that this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And, and, and that being what it is, would you please give us eyes to see the truth that you would have us to see here and to see it fresh and new? Would you give us minds to understand it clearly? Lord, would you give us hearts to embrace what Paul says here through the Holy Spirit? Would you give us wills to obey whatever it admonishes us to do? Would you give me the help that I need to teach? Would you give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in the Word? I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as we consider this wonderful passage, here, here's what I want us to see from it. Um, if you're taking notes, 
That's not a bad idea to do sometimes. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and lay out what I want us to see, and then we'll back up and go, and go through it. There are just two, two uh, main points that I want to highlight from these verses. And the first is this, seeing our sin magnifies our Savior. Seeing our sin magnifies our Savior. Not that everyone who is aware of their own sin and sinfulness, not that everyone who understands that flees to Christ as their Savior. Now, there are plenty of people who are sinners, know they're sinners, and revel in it, okay? But I would say this, everyone who does flee to Christ as their Savior understands well themselves to be a sinner. And the more we understand our sin, the more we're aware of it and honest about it, realistic about it, the more we see that and understand it, Christ our Savior is magnified in our eyes. I want to see that truth in this text. And the second truth I want us to see is this. Seeing our Savior magnifies His glory. Seeing our Savior magnifies His glory. Seeing our sin honestly and realistically helps us to see the beauty and the worth of our Savior. But the path that this text leads us to is this reality, is that the longer we look at Jesus, the longer we behold Him in the Scriptures, the more His glory grows and is magnified in, 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 our, in our hearts and in our minds. It's ma- I didn't say we, we, he, he gains a glory that He didn't previously have, but I, Brian may have used this analogy recently. It's, it's like looking at a distant star in a, in a telescope. That star, though it initially appears small in our vision, is in fact an already enormous star. But when you look at it in a telescope, that telescope doesn't make it bigger than what it is. It presents to your vision in a more clear way how big and how glorious it actually is. That's what happens when we gaze and behold the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't believe I'm going to be telling you anything new this morning, but I have utmost confidence that today, no matter how many times we've read it, is a good time to hear it again. So, this is a faithful saying. And so, that said, think with me first about this truth. Seeing our, sa- seeing our sin magnifies our Savior. Let me back up and just set the context here just a little bit too. Um, what I, I said what we find in verse 15 is, is the first of five different trustworthy sayings, faithful sayings throughout these um, uh, pastoral epistles. If you just want to jot down these references, this is the first one. But uh, So 1 Timothy 1.15 is the first one, but also 1 Timothy 3.1 is where Paul says this is a this trustworthy saying that if anybody aspires to the office of an overseer or, or pastor or elder, he desires a noble task. That's a trustworthy saying. Or he says, toward the end of this letter in 1 Timothy 4, 9. He says, it it is a faithful or trustworthy saying that bodily training is of some value, but but godliness holds holds value for eternal life. That's a faithful saying. Don't neglect that idea. Don't ever minimize that idea. Um, 2 Timothy 2, 11, when Paul says, "This this is a faithful or trustworthy saying, what he quotes thereafter is actually an early Christian hymn. It's a hymn that they would have sung in the churches. It's, if we die with Christ, we will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we're faithless, he will remain faithful. That's a song that was sung among the churches, trustworthy saying. 
And finally, in Titus 3, 8, the faithful saying that he, that he identifies there is the gospel itself. He says that God our Savior appeared, saving us not because of works or of righteousness that we had done in our, in our, of our own, but because of his mercy and that by his Holy Spirit we have been born again. We have been justified by his grace. We have the hope of eternal life. That's the gospel. That's a trustworthy saying. That's just giving you context for the kind of thing we're going to look at here. Jesus used this same word, saying, uh, in John 4.37, when he said, For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. And that strikes you. Oh, that's just a proverb that was just common in that day. That's a proverb, one sows and another reaps. That was a common saying. What that shows you uh, is, is that these were, what, what a saying was then is what it is now. It's something that is commonly referred to, commonly spoken among a, a people. And so what all of those, those sayings had in common uh, that I just itemized for you is that they were all sayings that were common in the churches. The, these, were the, these were the common refrains. This is what, if they had halls, this is what they were talking about in the halls. This is what Christians said to another Christian. This is what the pastors brought from the pulpit. These faithful sayings, these trustworthy sayings that we don't need to forget, these were the most important fundamentals that were never to be forgotten, never to be neglected. In fact, in, in, in the faithful saying in Titus 3.8, he said, I want you to insist on these things, right? Which would be true for all these sayings. These are things that Paul wants the church to say over and over and over again. And and dwell on so that the foundations of their faith in Christ grow deeper and stronger. And in our present text, I think we can see why. Paul begins verse 15 saying, the, trust, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that, and that that serves like a, a quotation mark to start the faithful saying, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That, 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 that language of Jesus Christ came into the world, that sounds like something that the Apostle John says a lot. I mean, or, or you see it in the Gospel of John a lot. We've been going through it on Sunday mornings, but you know, in John 1, 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Or John three nineteen, Jesus said, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than the light. Or think about John 11, at when, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the de dead, and Martha said to him in, in John uh, eleven nineteen, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. But it, it seems more probable that Paul, uh, even though he doesn't use this kind of language very often, he's not getting it from John, but it seems like this was a, a, a phrase that maybe the early church uh, got from Jesus himself in order to remember the most important reasons of why he came. For example, Jesus said in Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Or Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I didn't come to call the righteous. Why did I come? I came to call sinners. I came to call sinners. So this trustworthy saying in 1 Timothy 1 is most likely a summary of things that Jesus said regularly during his life and ministry, explaining why he came and what he came to do. Church would have tossed this around, not to forget what Jesus said. 
But as you're reading this faithful saying, if you're anything like me, your eyes are and your attention are invariably drawn to the end of the saying. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. In fact, the way Paul worded this verse in the original language emphasizes that. Uh, The way Paul originally worded it was, Christ Jesus came into the world sinners to save. Sinners to save. And so this passage certainly makes much of of the salvation that Jesus brought him, but but not before Paul expresses his clear-eyed vision of his own sin and his own wretched unworthiness. And when you read these verses, even in the verses just before it, Paul was recounting the fact that before he came to Christ, if you're looking at, at, at these, early, these verses just before it, that he was a blasphemer of Christ. He was a persecutor of Christians. He was an insolent, which means like arrogant, opponent of Christ. And this isn't the only time in the New Testament that Paul is is open and honest about the wretchedness of his life before Christ. I mean, uh, late in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 26, when he was standing trial before Agrippa, this is what he told King Agrippa. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them in all the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. When Paul reminded Timothy of that faithful and trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul had his own sins in mind when he said it. He he wasn't saying Christ Jesus came into the world to save them over there. He, he, He was most prominent the wretched sinner, when he said that. And we know that because he added one more phrase to the faithful saying. Paul didn't say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, period. No, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save, comma, sinners, comma, he added, of whom I am the foremost. I'm the worst, he says. He'll actually repeat it in verse 16. In me, as the foremost, as the worst. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but in, if, you, if you just pay careful attention in, in Paul's various letters and you're just noting little phrases here and there about Paul's assessment of his own life. For example, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul said, I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm the the smallest, I'm the least of the apostles. In Ephesians 3.8, he actually says, he says, I'm the least of all the saints. I'm the least of all the saints. I'm the lowest, most unworthy saint there is. And then here, I'm the worst of all the sinners. 
It's not as if he were, when he says, I'm the worst of all the sinners, I'm the foremost, it's not like he's presenting the findings of a scientific poll of all others. Results are in, yep, you're the worst. No, it's just that as he considered his own life, Paul just couldn't imagine a greater sinner than him. He just couldn't imagine. And while we're looking at it, notice the present tense he uses there. He doesn't say, of whom I was the foremost. I am, I am the foremost. Not that he was still a blasphemer. Not that he was still a persecutor. Not that he was still an insolent opponent of Christ. But he knew in his flesh he was still as much a sinner as he ever was. He's the one who wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 5, 17. Man, the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the desires of the flesh, and these are opposed to each other. They're at war with each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do and know are right. My goodness, if God left us to ourselves. Paul knew that the desires of his flesh were still, if just left alone, were still as, as opposed to Christ as they ever were. And so even as Paul is descriptive about the sinfulness of his life before Christ, even after coming to Christ, he still feels, I am the chief of sinners. I, I can't imagine that there is anyone who is more of a sinner than I am. But this isn't just confession time for Paul. This is, I don't, just remember where, what we're reading. This is Paul urging Timothy to pass this faithful saying on to the churches. And by extension, to anyone else who would ever read this letter, which includes us, this is part of the faithful saying. Philip Ryken comments on what Paul said here, and he says, then Paul added a phrase to make that trustworthy gospel personal. Sinners of whom I am the foremost. In this phrase... The apostle literally identifies himself as the first of sinners, meaning that he was the worst or the foremost or the chief sinner of them all. But he also invites us to put ourselves in his sandals as if to say, repeat after me, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. A mark of increasing maturity in Christ is an increasing awareness of your own sin and unworthiness before God. The older you get and the longer you walk with Jesus, it just seems like, man, I'm a sinner. Uh, and it's just an increasing soberness of the thought of just how hopeless you are apart from Christ. And it's an increasing astonishment of any good that might come to you from God in view of who you know yourself to be. The last thing that any Christian ought to be is proud. The last thing any Christian ought to do is slander or gossip about about somebody else's perceived sins or weaknesses. 
I, just, just think about how out of place that is. I think far too often in practice, sad to say, we're in, in practice we're more like the Pharisee toward the tax collector. Rather than Paul declaring his sincere assessment of himself that there is no way anyone could be a worse sinner than he is or that I am. The faithful saying for every believer is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I'm the worst. That's the faithful saying. That's the reality. That's the truth. But you can see in this passage how Paul's clarity toward his own wretched sinfulness, that is what, that is what gave him even greater clarity toward Christ and the salvation that Christ brought him. You can almost, when you take, when you just let, when you just let go of the familiarity of verse 15 and you just hear it brand new and you get down in the dirt with it, Jesus Christ came to save sinners and I'm the worst of them. When you, when you, when you marinate in that for a minute, then you can almost feel the astonishment. You can almost feel it when Paul says in verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the worst, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe for, in him for eternal life. Yes, Paul began this trustworthy saying that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's a word we use a lot, and rightly so. It's a biblical word. But every other time in this passage that he talks here about what he received from Jesus, he never says, I received salvation, as true as that would be. Because he was so keenly aware of his own sinfulness, what he says he received is mercy. Perfect patience. Back in verse 14, it was overflowing grace. Paul, Paul, Paul can't get over how undeserving he is. And it doesn't, you know, it's funny, and we need to hear this, like when, when he is just so overcome with how undeserving he is, that does not cause him to doubt Christ's love or the salvation that he brought. What it does is cause him to marvel at it. That it's not just patience, it's perfect patience. That it's not just grace, it's overflowing grace. I love how J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, I commend it to you, read it slowly, Knowing God. Take half a year and read it. I think in that book he captures a bit of what, what Paul is saying here. This is what J.I. Packer said. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love, that's Christ's love for me, is utterly realistic. Based at every point on prior knowledge 
of the worst about me so that no discovery, he can't find something out that he didn't already know, no discovery can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself. And nothing, nothing can quench his determination to bless me. That's, Paul doesn't land in doubt. He lands right there. And Paul says there in verse 16 that it is, it is the assurance of every believer, every sinner, every chief of sinner who comes to Christ. He said what happened to him, he says at the end of verse 16, what happened to him, that's what happens to every believer. It is a, it's deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save these kinds of sinners, to save them. John Gill was a, he was a Baptist pastor in, in London in the, in the 1700s. He, he was the pastor at one of the same churches that Charles Spurgeon would later pastor. And when he's talking about this text, this is what he said. This is one part of his sermon. Now such sinners and all sorts of sinners, Christ came to save from all their sins original and actual, from the law, its curses and condemnation, from the bondage of Satan, the evil of the world, and wrath to come, and from every enemy, and that by his obedience, sufferings, and death, by fulfilling the law, bearing its penalty, offering himself a sacrifice for sin, thereby finishing it, making reconciliation for it, and bringing in an everlasting righteousness, and a great Savior he is, and an only one, a full, suitable, able, and willing Savior, a Savior of the soul as well as of the body, and of both with an everlasting salvation." Seeing our sin magnifies our Savior. And the more clearly we see Him then, the more we magnify His glory. Think about that with me. We've already begun to see this in the way that Paul so astonishingly uh, described the salvation that, uh, that, that, and the mercy and the, and the grace and the patience um, in view of how undeserving he is, you know, certainly, certainly Paul also had in mind that he never once sought Christ out. Christ sought him out. He met him on the Damascus Road to change his course. But where we see this point the clearest, I think, is how after the utterly realistic discussion of his sin uh, and the perfect patience and mercy shown to him by Christ who came into the world to save sinners just like him, the clearest place we see that is how after verses 15 and 16, Paul simply erupts in doxology in verse 17. It almost seems to come out of left field. Look again at what he says in verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. At first glance, 
it might not seem like this doxology that it doesn't necessarily fit with what he just said. Maybe, maybe I'm the only one that ever thought that, and I apologize to you. I don't know. It's not in the sense that you don't understand why Paul erupted in praise. That, that makes complete sense. Um, but why he chose these words to praise God with at the end of that. I mean, it's like what he's been talking about so far is God's mercy and his grace and his patience But what he does now is praise God specifically for his eternity and immortality, invisibility, and his unity. I mean, did he change the subject? I don't think he has. I think what Paul has said in this doxology, it's not just a fitting praise of God at any time, which it is, but certainly also at the conclusion of the discussion of what he's just finished, of the astonishing mercy and grace of Jesus to completely undeserving sinners. And I think it's a fitting bookend to where he began in verse 15 when he said, this, is, this saying is trustworthy and it's deserving of full acceptance. Don't doubt it, is what he's saying. Don't doubt it. Um, unwavering Trust, one, full acceptance means, as one commentator put it, m- most complete and wholehearted acceptance. Don't doubt it. And I believe Paul's doxology in verse 17 is related to that and everything that came after it in this way. How can we know that this saying is trustworthy? How can we know that it is deserving of full acceptance? Because it almost seems too good to be true. Because ultimately, the one who made these promises and the one who accomplished these things is the king of ages. He's eternal. And so the salvation that Christ brought to sinners begun, was begun in eternity. It's why J.I. Packer said that his love for him was utterly realistic. He already knows everything about you. When, when God in eternity decreed that the Son would come for sinners... All our future sins to him were in full view. We can also be sure of this trustworthy saying because Paul says God is immortal. And so his promise will never fail. His salvation will never end. It will never die because he will, he's immortal. And we can be sure of, of this trustworthy saying because as Paul says, God's invisible. And you go, what? What does that have to do with anything? Yeah, Jesus, it's true. God took on flesh in Jesus Christ. John, John says we saw him, we touched him. But that taking on of flesh just confirms that the nature of deity itself is invisible. He didn't come as he was because he was invisible. He had to take on visible things to come. But still, why is that important? I think Paul, he's writing in the first century. I think Paul is deliberately contrasting the the nature of God with the materialistic gods of his day, which were capricious, 
and changed all the time. They were more like us than God's. Changing all the time. I think Paul throws this in here to say, to say that our God is invisible is to put him above and outside all of that, affirming he doesn't change. He's immutable. And it's because he is immutable and doesn't change that we can believe the trustworthy sayings of Christ's salvation to repentant sinners. And finally, Paul says, God is the only God. Which simply reminds us that his word and promise is all that matters. And when Paul is extolling and praising this God, he isn't praising someone other than Christ himself. In fact, Titus 3.8 says, when God our Savior appeared. That's Jesus. When Paul, Paul marvels at the mercy and the perfect patience of Christ, he knows that Christ is this God in the flesh made manifest to us. And so all his work have all the assurance and all the power of God himself in them. The more Paul was aware of his own sin, the more clearly he saw Christ his Savior. And the more he looked at Christ, the more it caused him to magnify his glory. We're going to have a time of invitation as Adam and the musicians come forward. We're going to have a time of of decision and appeal. You say, what do I do with this? What do I do with this passage that, that that Paul just laid out, this trustworthy saying? What do I do with it? Well, there are all sorts of you here. I mean, you're all sinners. So am I. I'm not putting myself outside of a different category. We're all sinners. Therefore, all of us have a responsibility to respond to this passage in some way. It's written to you and to me. So what do you do with it? In essence, whether you're an unbeliever, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you do the same thing with it. If you're a believer, you just just be reminded of your own sin. That's something I can't just conjure up in my own self. I can't just, and just be aware of all my sins or how just utterly wretched that is. Here's what you can do, though. Because why can't you do that? Because you're a sinner. I mean, that's why. I'm a sinner. I can't just make myself feel it. But what you can do is this. Verse 14, which was the verse right before our passage, Paul said, when he talked about the overflowing grace of God toward him, he said, the the overflowing grace of God to me in the faith and love that is in Christ Jesus. Now think about what he's saying. The faith, his grace overflowed to me in faith that is in Christ Jesus. That's not Jesus' faith in Paul. That's Paul's faith in Jesus. What gave him that faith in Jesus? The overflowing grace of God. So what you can do, don't just snap your fingers and say, 
get with it, be aware of how needy you are for Jesus, you sit, you sit there in this invitation and you just ask God to show you. Even if you're a believer, you don't need to come to him again and, and ask and, and, and like it's the first time, but come back to him and say, thank you. Thank you. And don't ever let me forget it again. And if you're an unbeliever here, what do you do? It. What do you do? You do the same thing. Lord, show me. Make me aware of how sinful and needy of Christ I am. And help me to believe what Paul said, that even if you're the worst, you can still come. Right? And so when we stand and, and sing in just a moment, that's, that's what we ought to all do with this passage. Lord, give us eyes to see. If I'm a believer, give me eyes to see my sin so I can be all the more thankful to you, Jesus. And if I'm an unbeliever, Lord, give me eyes to see the wretchedness of my own sin and give me the strength to come to Jesus. He receives sinners. Let's sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.